0: This series of lunchtime conversations intends to capture insights from some of society's thought leaders given the unprecedented times we're living in. It's the 28th of May and the UK feels like it's opening back up. There's still a sense of caution and fear of a sort of resurgence, but the detail is being worked through and some of those inevitable frictions in times of transition are being exposed and experienced. Part of my role at Warwick University is to make sure our education programmes remain relevant and continue to serve the needs of society. To do this, it's important to be part of the research and the industry community. The people I'm speaking to in this series form my professional network and I rely on them to inform and help steer our educational offerings. We've seen seismic shifts um, in in society and in all areas of life. The extraordinarily pervasive nature of COVID-19 will have lasting effects. To discuss this, my lunchtime guest today is Dr. Amber McIntyre, researcher at Tactical Tech, a guest lecturer at several European universities, including Warwick, and last, but by no means least, my daughter. So, welcome to lunch. Thank you for
1: talking with
0: me. In the UK, we're beginning to open up. You're based in Berlin how's life there and do you think you've already returned to what is the new normal and 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 can you share and let us say what that is
1: I think it's a a a difficult question to answer in terms of um and it's ever changing that thing um the rules the balances I don't think we're back to in any way a sense of what a normal what normal would have felt like before because travel is still restricted to other countries for me to visit you in coventry is is a big part of what normal is for me um clubs and bars aren't open past 10 o'clock but it has opened up a little bit more you can go to cafes during the day and i actually think this feeling of trying to work out what is the new normal is like a, a constant evaluation of what what is normal to start with what are you moving towards what what does it look like for you to feel like you have access to the freedoms you previously had? And that's the new part is the ones that you won't have access to anymore, such as um, traveling around to other countries as easily. And wh- I, I still don't have any sense of the future of what that looks like. Totally. Mm. It still feels like it could go either way. September could be different. December could be different.
0: Mm. Are you are you back at work? How does that uh, are you going in or how does that work?
1: yeah um we have an office space that we they have now opened up office spaces and as an organization a lot of our work is um over we we managed quite quickly to get into these processes where people could work from home and what they've done is open the office with a set amount of social distancing um but also said if you're comfortable working from home keep working from home which i am and if It's something that you really need and want to go into the office to work which again with that concept of normal for some people it's very important for them to get back into an office they've been able to um, and so we've, we've negotiated sort of as an organization let's create space for those people who want to go into an office and for those of us who are quite comfortable working from home to continue to do so
0: Mm. Oh, thank you. We'll come back to tactical tech in a minute. But um, you've got an interest in you've had this interest in activism for uh, well, nearly as long as I've known you, but certainly for a very long time. And um, you worked for Amnesty International after graduating before going on to complete your master's in Costa Rica at the University for Peace. Like any student who studies internationally, you made a great network there and. Um, Do you keep in touch with that network and do you see, do you get responses from them about how they have been impacted by the pandemic from their different locations now?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question around um, also the networks that we generate by traveling, being able to travel, by being able to meet people face to face. And then you develop like some people I keep in touch with a little bit more substantially, uh, but some people it's more and in response to that question it's more about having this network now available on facebook friends mm-hmm. and being able to see their updates and they are it's, it's quite interesting how different it's been people who are talking about it i also think it's not just on their country basis but personality basis people who are talking about it um, how it's affecting them in indonesia and then how it's affecting them in colombia mm-hmm. and it's really interesting to sort of see different people respond and i have to say it really feels in some ways very consistent but that's perhaps because it's a group of students who went to an international university but it's quite a consistent message of people comfortably saying they want to stay at home they want to stop the spread of this pandemic it feels really like a universally understood
0: problem yes. yeah mm. once you once you finish your studies you return in costa rica you return to london and you picked up and you you, you carried out a phd and um, in political communications so i guess that's kind of super super hot topic and relevant at the moment and it was during that time um, of carrying out your research for your PhD that you first met and started to work with tactical tech can you share a little bit about what it is that organization is about and how they how they what their role is and what their mission is and what it is that drew you specifically to, to want to go and be part of their organization
1: yeah um It was really interesting actually because i had heard of tactical tech while i was working at amnesty international and as an organization at that point um, tactical tech was set up in 2003 and when i interacted with them in 2011 or 12 their mission around was from quite consistently across that time was about how to find tools use technologies and for civil society organizations and for campaigners to be able to use those tools in their work. And so I first interacted with them um, through their um, a book that they got on visual, visualizing advocacy. So it was about how to use tech tools to visualize um, your advocacy or lobbying or legal campaigns, mm-hmm. and also how to visualize how to use maps. So they had um, a great program on how you go and use Google maps to conduct your research in investigations in human rights or in your social campaigns. Um, and how you can use that to map things out since then and, and really over those like few years that it took me to my PhD I had become much more I was initially interested in how to use technology for good and then by the time I was doing my PhD I'd taken such a critical stance particularly around the Snowden leaks of um where Edward Snowden had these what's often referred to as the revelations mm. um of mass surveillance being conducted by the UK and the US and Australia's security bodies. And then we started as a society, I think, becoming much more critical about data-driven exercises or mass collection of data. And then by the time I came around to tactical tech, I've now joined their team, um, Data and Politics, which looks at how data is used in election campaigning with quite a critical stance, although the organization itself really tries to remain somewhere balancing How is it useful? What is good about it? How can we use technology tactically uh, in the name tactical tech? But then also, yeah, what is what negative impacts does it have? How can we limit those negative impacts?
0: Mm. So I think think I've got two questions, I think, that sort of lead on from that. I think um, the first one, I think I'll just I'll ask you around, you know, test, track, trace and isolate. Well, it's all over the news today in the UK. And an app um, was being trialled in the Isle of Wight, but it isn't ready to be rolled out yet to support that strategy of managing the pandemic. Handing over the control to the government like this for the control of the virus. Should I be worried about privacy and should I be should I care about who knows my data and what they might use that data for? And how would the UK? Would you would you say the UK's strategy compare against that of maybe South Korea or Singapore? Um, what what's your views on on that space?
1: Yeah, I mean, a very big question, and I'll try and narrow down my thoughts a little bit because it could go so many directions. I think something you said, you said there, like as part of that, the question was: should should we be worried? Should I, as an individual, be worried? Hmm. And Although I I would want to caution from the concepts of worrying um, and stressing about it, but there are things that we should know about and be informed about around our privacy. And for me, particularly, like one of the ways that the pandemic can be managed best is through tracking. And that's been seen in quite an evidence-based way. Mm. And as an organization, even at Tactical Tech, then we have a sign-in system if we do go into the office so that we could track who's been in the office if someone got it yeah and that's like really a useful tool but what we have to be cautious of or what the thing that so i I think doing that itself it's great if the government has also control over that i from in my opinion because they're the ones who i trust most that they should that their aim would be to protect citizens in their borders yes yes But I also think we have to be cautious what, um, where that would go uh, in terms of like, there should be a limit on when that data stops being used. So the collection of the data itself, great, then we can use it usefully. How do we put a limit to say that's how it will be used and only that? When will it all be deleted? Because that data at some point should be deleted or turned into sort of anonymous statistics that might be used in health evidence Mm. but health studies for the future but how do we make sure that's done really in only those specific ways and if we want to decide we want to use it for research can we say that now when we're collecting this data it will be used both to curb the pandemic and for future research Mm. so people know that's what they're signing up to Mm. on the other side I think like the, the rolling out of an app to do it I'm not always sure about like technology solutions immediately to things because apps are faulty and I mean the amount of from my research campaign apps and so lots of political parties use campaign apps it collects so much sensitive data on what people are politically interested in or even where they go and who they talk to who their friends are on these apps that's really precious private information and they fail these apps fail and I'm currently, I do trust the government to maybe set boundaries and and to have the best interests for me. But I don't, sh- I'm not sure I trust their ability to have an app that would be safe.
0: Yes. Yeah. It's, um, and it's interesting speaking to Amanda Lam on Monday, um, very much based in Hong Kong. And um, of course, they're very high tech in Hong Kong and they're very, they've got a young population. And yet, um, when her response to how they managed the pandemic so well, it was down to behaviours, you know, it was around to hygiene, social distancing, washing your hands. Um so there, there was a kind of a more um the onus was on the individual to take very practical steps to make sure that physically, you know, that the virus wasn't being passed rather than looking for that solution to kind of um control it once it's once it has been passed. I thought it's quite an interesting perspective.
1: That's such a great way to describe it, actually, because I and maybe with the issue with um, I think there's a phrase for that I can't quite remember, but tech solutions um, mm-hmm. that. If you're not addressing behavior with them, they're not ever going to help that yeah. you know, behavior is the important part and how we act and what we're doing. And then we build we can build technology around that to support it, but the behavior comes first.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and another question that sort of comes from that that first response is from Diane Burton Um, and she asks, ICT and Internet have been vital in enabling many people to continue working and socialising through the pandemic induced lockdowns. Many people have swiftly gained new skills in digital technologies and an acceptance of their usage. How do you think this might this swift increase in the use of digital technologies might contribute to the vision of a more equitable and sustainable society? And what particular challenges do you think the swift increase in digital technology usage has presented for society? And what and what impacts might need to be mitigated going forward? Quite a big question. but
1: Definitely a big question there. Um, I think there's maybe two strands. I think there could be so many strands again of ways to take that. Uh, my my personal interests have been in privacy um, and uh, I guess my also my professional interests um, like that's where I focused and I think one of the things I've seen when people have uptaken like uh, yeah taken up all of these different technologies for calling each other and being in um, contact with each other was the amount of criticism that Zoom received almost immediately People moved on to Zoom and then they looked at the privacy policies and then they were shared and people were like, what is this? And Zoom had to change what it was doing so fast. Mm-hmm. And it did change it very fast, which I also think shows that when pressure is put on, the organizations change, the companies change. Yes, uh, And so in that way, I think there was a really it, it almost I don't know if came at the right time. is really the phrase that I want. But mm. the the things that happened to give her in a way that contributed to this a positive effect, I think, is that privacy concerns have been higher than they've ever been because mm-hmm. of the lots of stuff, not just around the Edward Snowden revelations, but also the Cambridge Analytica scandal that showed that data was being used from Facebook um, in political elections. They, so they were using an app to collect lots of data, not just on the people using the app, but all of their friends because the app said, "Can we con- can we access your contacts?" And I think. Although those details maybe aren't known by everyone, there was this sense that we had to start holding Facebook to account and lots of um, legal cases also came then. Mm -hmm. And from from the government side, it's not like government investigations, not just like lawsuits. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think in some ways there's, for everyone to suddenly go online and at the same time have like quite a high perception of privacy concerns. And that's really it's so one of the things would be to maintain that and also for us to see that companies can change quickly and not have the sense that oh but it's already gone too far they've already got you know they the technology companies have so much power and they're moving forward and we have to catch up with them actually if we as people say no stop we want it like this they they do change
0: yes yeah yeah no that's i guess that's quite hopeful answer thank you um and I guess uh, activism you know activism's been around for for a long long time um digital activism is is a relatively new space uh, in the grand scheme of things um as as the as that sector matures do you think it's got a long way to go with evolution or do you think it's getting to the point where the regulatory framework the the practice the way we behave do you think it's stabilizing um or do you think there's a long way for it to evolve before we really kind of know what this space is.
1: That's an interesting framing to think about also its future and what that looks like. Um, But starting with like looking at its quite quick, its current history, which is quite recent. Um, I actually in preparation of thinking of of the session was thinking back to where the work that I'm currently in tactical tech started in 2003. Um, so it's 15 years ago. So it's not like the last five years, which the last five years have yes. really, the rules have changed. The perceptions have changed. Um, and another group that I've, like professional network that I've been part of is the e-campaigning forum or ECF as it's known. And they had 20 years ago, around 20, maybe a little, yeah, 20 years ago, it was just three or four people in a pub and they started meeting regularly to discuss in what, tools like how they were going to use email and then you see this transformation which was also when i started looking at my phd around and was working at amnesty in fact um 2012 where so if we start with there like how do we use email and then 2012 avas and change.org and 38 degrees these are like these campaigning organizations that are really built on technology and they they develop through the use of technology and they both like Avaz boasts 25 million members and members are defined by having an email address that they've signed up to the organization with. So like the use of email there to like, how can we connect with a few members of our audience and how can we connect them to MPs, which is still an important part of what they do to really scale. And then in the last few years being like, what is the metadata of those emails? Do we know who else is seeing them? Or do we trust Google as a email yeah. provider? And it's become really critical and I just think that I think those are three really different cultures. And to work out what the next one would be, whether we had to go like this and now we're stabling you know, up and down and then stabling out, um or if those three things aren't ups and downs against each other, but three very different cultures, and there's going to be like a fourth, very different culture.
0: I, I, I actually have no idea. yeah, early days, I guess, early days. So um, Well, thank you thank you for sharing the insights and can i ask you just uh um what are you most looking forward to with the kind of ease of of lockdown and and what you're holding out for
1: seeing my (laughs) mum obviously
0: obviously
1: yeah i that's really very top of my list um and probably i mean the spontaneity that you get from in-person Um, context so I I love to go to sit in a bar with a friend and you just make friends with someone else and I I miss those sort of very spontaneous interactions you can have with either with friends or with people you don't know and you can also sit in silence with friends in real life and you can't do that so easily over a video Um, I might start having like sponsored silences on video just to try and get some of that
0: (laughs) Yeah, lovely. Well, thank you very much for sharing these insights. For me, you know, as always, they're enormously useful to help steer and I use them to help steer my professional practice, my education programmes and my understanding of the current state of research in this area and going forward. For our current students, these insights can help shape their research and they can use all this interview to help um, inform their research inquiries. Um, And for the wider Warwick community, just insightful. And thank you very much and valuable for sharing. If anybody listening would like to hear more from Amber, please either drop me a line um, and I'll forward it on. Um, And I'll be on Warwick's website. And if you're watching this on YouTube, follow the link on the closing slide. This series will also be made available as a podcast. Just search insights over lunch on your preferred listening platform. So nothing more to say there, Amber. Thank you very much indeed and enjoy your lunch.